You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 323 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have regular contributor Michael Harris, attorney Michael Harris, director of the Wildlife Law Program for the organization Friends of Animals. And we talked to Michael about the whaling situation in Japan, also philosophy of personhood for animals, happiness of animals, species diversity. We get into wild horses and sea lions and shooting birds and fish ladders and uh, the oil industry, the cattle industry. Great conversation with attorney Michael Harris today on the program. We also have an EW essay titled Squatting and an excerpt of Fyodor Dostoevsky's masterpiece, Notes from the Underground, as well as a poem called Wild Horses. And of course, all of this will be imbued, infused, with the energy of several great tunes. It's nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 323 of Troubadours and Tours. There is an old Catholic-infused saying, loosely translated, old age is a cross to bear. Then again, with Catholicism, pretty much most is a cross to bear. Despite the aches and pains, physical and otherwise, that inevitably exist as one stays around, they are better than the alternative. 
Some days are very hard, and the need to survive seems less important, but for the reality that there are several people counting on you. A feeling of being lost, and one of realizing you are not, but instead that the id is so pronounced in this existence, so dominant, consumes you just short of disappearing, yet not so easy of an end to this existential conundrum. Your marrow aches from the Tai Chi inward infinite and steady forever. As the wind dances the leaves prisoners to the trees, branches bending and sway in the cool sunlight, and your voice inside beckons and wonders loudly, screaming in silence, trapped within the cowardice of your head for peace, for justice. A recollection comes to me of a sleeveless, tattooed vagrant squatting alongside no one's market, smoking cigarettes and drinking a quart of beer during late morning traffic. And I wonder if I might join him. Michael Harris, is that you? This is me. How are you doing? Oh, thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock On Tours once again. Oh, you're welcome. I'm very glad to be here. 
We're, Sorry for my uh, limited availability lately. Well, you're doing good work, important work for many of our fellow creatures on the planet. So that's a good reason not to be talking to us. But it's always wonderful to have you on throughout the year to hear what exactly you are experiencing and how you're trying to deal. Uh, we're talking to the director of the Wildlife Law Program for the organization Friends of Animals. And um, he's out of Denver, right? Denver, Colorado? That's where we are. And uh, he and I go way back. We met back in the 90s. Uh, and uh, he's a good man, a good friend, and most importantly for you folks, an expert on animal rights law. And uh, today we're going to revisit something we talked about last time, uh, and that is whaling. So we're going to get a whaling update, in particular what's going on with Japan. And uh, we'll talk a bit about sea lions, and, and then we're going to get into some wild horses, another big issue. So uh, how's it going? How's everything going out there in Denver with uh, your organization, Friends of Animals? Well, it's going great. I mean, the good news is that most of uh, what I've been up to the last couple months has just been building the organization. We've hired more people, and, um, and that's the exciting part. So one of the reasons I've been so busy the last month is that now that we have more people, I need to give them more work. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of it out there. It's just, uh, you know, making sure that the, the projects that we take on are worthwhile and also something that we could achieve some good out of. And so, yeah, we, when we started the program back in 2013, uh, it was just me and a part-time student of mine. And um, she's full-time. She's been full-time and with me since 2014. But as of today, we have uh, six attorneys in the office and we have a full-time administrator paralegal that we just hired too. So we're, 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 you know, got some steam. Yeah, congratulations. And, you know, I mean, when you petition the Supreme Court of the United States to find personhood and such for uh, other other living creatures, you need a crew. You do. You need a crew to go up against all of these um, uh, these um, sort of animal um, detractors out there and folks who would like people to uh, not think of them as having a worthy lives. So... Yeah, we, we're good. We're happy to have uh, all of these people on board now. Yeah, speciesists, right? Human species is uh, superior and more important uh, to too great of an extent often, I think, is the mindset. Whereas we, we don't take into consideration the, um, I guess, happiness. Is that a good word? Do you care about the happiness of other creatures? Absolutely. I mean, you care just to have them around, first of all. I think... You know, the news as of late, uh, just in the past uh, half a year or so, I mean, there's just been so many news stories of, you know, dire f future, hit, you know, for the, the species on this planet. Um, the extinction rate is, is so high and so fast. And, uh, you know, the popular media is now picking up on this. And you may have seen just in the last couple months a number of stories about just how bad it really is. So, yeah, first and foremost, you just... You want us, we want to have a place for animals. We want diversity on this planet, of course. And then, yes, I think, you know, we want them to be happy, too. I mean, we don't want to just uh, maintain places of misery for animals either. Well put. Well put. Now, the the whaling situation. Last time we, we talked, you, you, um, you gave us a lot of insight 
about Japan's decision to not abide by an international or to an international ban on whaling. Uh, what has gone on since the last time we spoke? I think it was back in February we talked. Right. So it, it looks as if um, this coming summer they're going to go ahead and move forward openly with commercial whaling and that they have, in fact, given notice and withdrawn from the International Whaling Commission and and no longer going to abide by those restrictions. I mean, I think the, the whaling story is really interesting in my mind because there are certain animals that I think generally the public and most people just believe um, – are given a sort of a special status and aren't really the subject of, um, you know, being hunted or being killed by, by humans any longer. And I think whales are sort of in that place. I mean, since the seventies, uh, the world really has come together to protect these species and almost every nation in the world has pledged not to, um, whale anymore. Um, you know, and the, the exceptions of course were Japan, Norway, and Iceland, uh, all three of which, as we talked about before, uh, claim that they're doing it for scientific purposes, which the world um, and advocacy organizations like Friends of Animals has sort of said, yeah, we know that's that's just a uh, that's just a um, uh, an excuse, and that that's not really what's going on here. That these animals are being harvested for commercial purposes. And, you know, Japan is finally coming out and saying, fine, you know what, we're just going to do what we want to do. So. Um, so it looks like this summer will be the first commercial harvest um, in the Pacific um, for more than two decades. So, um, you know, from our standpoint, just to sort of talk about our, our organization, you know, we've been interested in doing marine uh, species work and working with marine animals, but just haven't had the resources or the expertise to do so. We were actually involved with a few. We, we, um, we're one of the first organizations, along with Wild Earth Guardians, to get uh, a, a shark species, the thresher shark, listed under the Endangered Species Act. So we have some experience, and we also have a case involving Queen Conch and trying to get uh, that species put on the endangered species list down in the um, in uh, the Bahamas and Bermuda area and actually have a court case. But for the most part, it's been something that we haven't been able to do um, in, in, a, in a great uh, amount. And so the whaling situation and our strong opposition to it has got, got some attention to of some investors. And um, one of the nice things for us is that um, our willingness to get involved here and try to challenge the Japanese on this has attracted um, some money and we've put together a new fellowship, um, an international marine wildlife fellowship that we're, we currently have um, staffed and we're trying to put together the finishing touches on the um, uh, financial arrangements to keep that position around for three years. So we're, we're gearing up and we're going to go after these guys. How, how would you do that? I mean, do you have uh, standing of, in, in, to go into court and question a, a foreign government? I mean, how, how does that work? Well, one thing, we really are looking at a three-pronged approach here and um, something we're going to pursue over the next several months. Uh, there are a couple U.S. laws that were designed to allow Americans to petition the Secretary of Commerce and the Secretary of Treasury to place or impose sanctions or restrictions on on countries that are not complying with certain environmental and wildlife laws. And one of the main ones is they're not complying with the Marine Mammal Protection Act and 
um, international treaties on protecting marine mammals like whales. So we, while that is, you know, dependent obviously upon the federal government making that decision, um, it is a tool that we can utilize to um, put pressure um, by submitting a petition, put pressure on Japan, uh, knowing that that petition has been filed with uh, with these federal agencies, and also garner more and more um, public attention to it. So that's one approach. Uh, the other, is we're looking into trying to file a complaint um, for past practices um, with the um, Whaling Commission as, wh- as well as the ICUN um, to see if we can get fact-based um, um, development, you know, so sort of develop a fact-based statement about these practices on the international level. And then we're also looking to see if we can't get local legislation in sort of certain American cities that um, – uh, have a lot of influence on commerce with Japan, like San Francisco and Seattle, both of which are sympathetic toward um, these type of environmental issues and also have had problems in the past with Japanese whale meat ending up in um, in the black market in both of those cities. So trying to get them to uh, impose um, greater restrictions and or, you know, declarations against the these practices um, might might be beneficial since they're big trading partners with the Japanese. Yeah, you know that works for sure. The economic component, yeah. uh, kind of like in in this country, if uh, uh, the state governor and legislature embraces a law that uh, other folks believe uh, is unethical, um, they or immoral or both, they will won't put they they uh, will keep their business from going to that state to try to say to them through their pocketbook through their wallet that no if you do this we're not going to spend our money in your state kind of the same idea yeah the exact same idea and and in context of how this might work with animals and we actually saw uh, just over the past year or so um, there was a sort of an attempt to develop what is called an elephant safari excuse me elephant back safari industry in South Africa. And uh, it was being funded by two very large agricultural entities um, that were frankly looking for a place to put their displaced elephants. Um, They didn't want them on their property. And so they were trying to sell them off to an industry that could use them for these uh, safaris. And um, the tourism industry, particularly ecotourism industry, and countries like Australia um, started to say, look, we're not going to book clients there any longer, and we're going to take action on agricultural imports um, from South Africa. And, um, you know, that quickly changed the game. And these these elephant safaris are dwindling in number and are likely to disappear now in, in South Africa because of this economic pressure. It is amazing, though, that it always has to come down to the dollar, right? You can't just have, uh, it seems, uh, someone make a decision just because it's an ethical decision or a moral decision. That's too gray or not important or what have you to justify uh, a change in behavior. But if you if you hurt them economically, then then maybe they will change. It, it, it's disheartening. That, that is true, and, and that, that is for a majority of companies – that are profiting off of animals or displacing animals. That is true. But I would like to say, you know, just um, in March, I was down at a conference um, by a South African company. There there was a client 
conference that they hold. They're a uh, software and HR company. They're called EpiUse. And they are they work with a much larger corporation. You may have heard of them. It's a SAP. Yeah. You know, they I think they have an arena somewhere now. They're getting pretty big. But just to just to say something about that, both of those companies really invest their money in wildlife protection because they think it's the right thing to do. And because they're tech industry and they recruit a lot of young people. What they were telling me at this conference is that when they and, – and by the way, they give their employees an opportunity to propose and participate in projects that protect wildlife around the globe. And so when they go to these recruiting fairs at, you know, at schools like yours or other schools, you know, they have like just a ton of people at their table while, you know, these other tech – companies, you know, just, you know, you know, going, what's going on over there? What are they giving out? Free donuts or something, right? But no, it's that these young people are like, want to go to a company that's doing the right thing. Yeah. And want to be part of a, you know, of, of more of a, you know, something that's close to their values. So I, I really want to just sort of, you know, say that it's true that it usually comes down to hurting someone's dollar book. Um, but, you know, it's nice to, to have a couple entities out there that are trying to change that. Yeah, well, it's good to hear. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, by the way, they may be one of the big financial supporters of our new fellowship. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you got to give them some some uh, cred then. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> uh, Michael Harris, Attorney Michael Harris, here on the program, and let, let's get into. Um, you wanted to talk a bit about the sea lines. How, is this whaling um, situation where the Japanese want to go out and do some commercial whaling? Does that directly affect the sea lines, or is this a sea lion situation something totally separate? So it's totally separate, and it, it's something that you know some of your listeners may have remembered from the past. But you know what? It's really happening here is that um, the salmon populations in the Pacific Northwest are looking really bleak. And you know the number one reason that the salmon populations up in we're talking like uh, in the Washington area, British Columbia, Canada have um, been suffering has been dam building, particularly along um, like the Columbia River. And, and so we have known this for a long time, now, for you know, decades, that we have known that we have really impacted the salmon runs because we've built these dams. Uh, and we have spent a lot of time and money trying to work around that, you know, fish ladders and workarounds on the dams. But frankly, you know, we have not seen the populations recover. And the news came out in the last year or so that it's a lot worse than anyone imagined. Mm -hmm. And that we, we may be looking at a real possibility of localized extinctions in the, in the Pacific Northwest, which is a bad thing. Salmon are a very important species, not only to the ecosystem, but obviously to to the to to the humans and you know their their resource as well, right? Yeah, I would presume it's a it's a red flag as also as to the the greater ecosystem that it's a part of. I agree, I agree. And so, in any case, um, you know, no one has put up forth the idea that they're going to remove the dams, although it's been floated. Um, and so, you know, this is we talked many many, I think 
you know, times about the barred owls and, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, how they're being scapegoated for the, for the Northern spotted owls, but it's the same thing now. Can't remove the dams. What, what else can we do? Uh, we built all the fish ladders. We built all the workarounds, the dams they are not improving the population. Well, what else is eating salmon? Birds eat salmon. So they started shooting cormorants um, that were feeding on the salmon. Um, They did that for a while. Then it came out that it was actually causing a negative effect because it was causing the cormorants to uh, move location and eat salmon in areas that were even worse off. So that wasn't working very well. And then the sea lions. So the sea lions aren't stupid, very smart animals. Many decades ago, when they used to wait for the salmon down in the, in the Pacific at the, at the end of the river, at the Columbia River, uh, they soon realized that they could actually swim up the river and that the salmon would be getting in line to go up the, the, the fish ladders and they could just sit there and they just, you know, swim right into their mouths. And so um, back in... uh, How does a fish ladder work for some of our novice listeners? How how does that work? It's man-made? It is man-made. And what it is, is it is uh, little channels that are built on each side of the dam. And it's like a lock, sort of, right? Where the fish come in and then the water can raise and they could swim to the next level and so forth. And it's on a really consistent basis, feeding the fish up through the dam. So sort of like a locker with, you know, where boats will come through. Mm-hmm. But on a more micro level, I actually, if you went to the Bonneville Dam and they have a viewing room where you can watch the fish traverse the, um, the, the, the fish ladder from a viewing area through glass. Wow. It's pretty interesting. Um, but it takes a great deal of effort on their part and a lot of changing and constant change of flow um, by the dam operators to keep them moving upwards. So, um, but, uh, you know, there's only, you have to work your way to that part of the dam, the fish do, in order to use it. And the sea lions realize, well, they can just go over there and park themselves there and it's pretty easy work. And so before they built the dams, no one would have ever seen a sea lion, you know, 20, 30, 40 miles up the the Columbia River. (laughs) They they just, they just figured that out um, based upon how we altered the ecosystem. So um, a few decades ago, they started to shoot the sea lions. Wow. Picking them off from the dam or from boats on the river. Um, There was a lot of controversy over that and uproar over that. And sea lions are technically protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, so they had to get a permit to do that, and the permit was challenged by conservation groups. So they started using alternative uh, methods like loud horns, um, shooting off cannons, and even shooting like these big like rubber cannonballs at them that would just sort of injure them and hurt them or scare them off, you know, big thump on the side. Well, you know, the sea lions are becoming accustomed to most of that now. The noise isn't bothering them anymore. The cannonballs are still a problem, but that's sort of expensive to do. And so, you know, they they just try to, the sea lions just try to keep an eye out for those guys coming. Um, but But they're not really scared off anymore. And so they have recently proposed to return to the shooting. Just killing them dead with guns. 
just killing sea lions dead with guns. I mean, it's a horrific thing. I mean, these are smart, intelligent, playful animals that, you know, are on the higher end of the intelligence spectrum. And, and these are sea lions. How big are they? Well, sea lions can get pretty big. Yeah. You know, um, I, you know, the big, big ones could be a couple tons, but you know, most of these guys are several hundred pounds. Wow. These aren't easy. They're not hard to shoot. Let's put it that way. When, when I was at the Bonneville Dam, we were taken out on the observation and we could see them, you know, clearly within a couple hundred yards of the, of the operation and the, the Bonneville authority boats were out there, you know, circling them and trying to harass them and that kind of stuff. And they primarily would, if they weren't in the Columbia River, uh, because they could get some good eaten, so to speak, of the salmon, where would they be normally, sea lions? They would be in the Pacific. They would certainly be along the, the mouth of the water there. Um, you know, they would still be fishing actively in that area. Um, but they wouldn't go up into the river system. I mean, you know, the river system is, is a pretty wide and, and big river system. Without the dams there, the fish have, you know, are, are, it's, it's much more easier for the sea lions to be in the, in the mouth of the river because they have a, you know, there's more diversity of food there. Yeah. Do they look a lot like seals? Yeah, they do. They look a lot like seals. Seals are a little smaller, I think. So, You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. So they're shooting, they're shooting sea lions, and uh, you're trying to stop it. Yeah, so we're looking to work with a few groups to see if we can't challenge the permits again in the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Now, is it because you're worried about their numbers, or is it because you're worried that it's just wrong to kill these animals, or both? Yeah, I, I think we think it's wrong to, for this type of um, killing of the animals and also the scapegoating of the animals for what we clearly have done to the ecosystem. I mean, there is um, there are a number of studies now that show that the Pacific Northwest can get away with its power needs without these dams. But these dams, no, aren't necessarily needed any longer. The solar and wind um, capacity of the region, which didn't exist when these dams were built, um, is, 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 is significant and growing in number um, and in, in quantity. And there are a, just, a, as I said, a number of proposals to remove these dams, but it's only the people making the money off of them, right? And they're built. There's no capital investment uh, outside of maintenance. They're just generating money, and they don't want to lose that source of revenue. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, boy. Uh, so we want to be kept up to date on that. I guess this is in the early stages, uh, your your efforts at uh, stopping. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and even I think even more to the point, you know, is the, the sea lions are, yes, they're having a small impact on the salmon run. But this has been going on for more than 20 years. And these reports aren't pointing to, the, oh, just remove the sea lions and the salmon will recover. I mean, that's not what any credible scientist has suggested out there. You know, uh, this is the managers and the and the, and the dam operators saying, you know, can we hold off the inevitable longer? Right, right. And again, scapegoats. You know, it's always nice, especially if it's uh, an animal that can't defend itself. Right. Um, so, how about 
We've talked in the past. Good luck with the sea lions, and I can't wait to hear how uh, things develop on that front. And it's fascinating talking about the Columbia River, one of the most amazing uh, bodies of water on the continent, and hearing your your explanation as to what's going on with the salmon and the sea lions and all that, it really conjures great uh, pictures in my imagination, and it gives me a sense of the uh, wonderful Pacific Northwest that we, you know, as American citizens, all have a stead in, all have a a right to, in a way, right? I mean, it's ours, it's our land. Um, So thank you for all that insight. Now, another part of being... I guess, a citizen of the United States and part of the mythology and the sense of our national character, wild horses. You've been fighting for them for a while. And uh, there's, I just saw on your website today a new article was, was uh, posted about uh, something that's going on with the Bureau of Land Management and, and uh, their, their ways in, in terms of controlling the population of, of wild horses. Give us some, give us some insight on that. Well, we filed a new case this week, uh, in fact, just yesterday, and it is probably the most important case we've ever filed. Um, Really, over the past, what, since January of 2015, we have been waging a tit-for-tat battle with the Bureau of Land Management as they have been trying to remove more and more wild horses, utilizing more and more illegal tools. And we have been very successful in the last three, almost four years of, of, of really keeping them in check. And so, uh, if anything, I guess in this latest lawsuit, the gloves are off. Um, the Bureau of Land Management uh, probably partly peeved uh, with our, um, our success and partly um, beholden to those constituents like the cattle and to lesser extent oil and gas industries that uh, don't want wild horses on public lands um, has decided to implement a plan for one of the herds up in Oregon that will essentially render that herd a non-breeding remnant population of about 140 horses. And it is their intention to replicate that model for all the wild horse herds that it can throughout the Western United States. Now, you got to remember, when Congress decided to protect these animals back in 1972, it clearly stated that wild horses were supposed to be part of a thriving natural ecosystem. I don't think anyone in their right mind would think that having a bunch of sterilized or um, uh, drugged with contraceptive females mixed with males is a thriving natural ecosystem. <laughs> it is what it is. It's it's just a sterile, controlled population. And the real terrible thing about this is that they had originally uh, been using a, a drug, a contraceptive called PZP, which is derived from the ovaries of pigs, and acts to block pregnancy in, in, in a number of animals, elephants, um, as well as deer and, and horses. Uh, they were using that to control the population by dosing a number of mares. We had our oppositions to that and still do, but at least with PZP, it's not very cost-effective, and also it has to be done every couple of years. So it wasn't being done on a very large scale. 
So what they're intending to do with this herd that we filed lawsuit over yesterday in Oregon, and I'm just going to be brutally descriptive here, and they want to bring the mares in to the stables and cut them open and rip out their ovaries. And they want to do this while they're just mildly sedated because it's too much and too expensive to literally put them in a controlled environment, surgical environment where they could be put, you know, put under appropriately. And then they want to stick them back out and they will not have to worry about breeding at all anymore. Wow. That's brutal. Yeah. It's terrible. And the American public thinks it's terrible. And you know what? Here's the thing. They, about two years ago, they first proposed to do this with the veterinarian um, medicine department at Oregon State University. And after we filed lawsuits against them, the Oregon State University said, we don't want to have anything to do with this. Last year, they proposed it with the veterinarian department at the Colorado State University. That lasted about a month, and the, the actual president of the university wrote a letter saying we will have no part of this. All right. Great. So now BLM is going to do it on their own with, out of, out of all things, the U.S. Geological Service, which I have no idea why they're involved. But we believe that they're just going to, under the radar, just hire a bunch of, frankly, hack veterinarians with no ethics. And, right. and just do this on their own. So um, we're challenging these plans. Uh, they haven't finalized the sterilization plan. They have only, they've only at this point finalized the decision to only put back a limited number of horses and to control their population. But we expect that before our suit really gets going, that we'll be amending it to add the, ster the um, surgical sterilization component to it. Um, but this is really, you know, this is really about as far as you can imagine BLM going, saying, you know, we don't care about thriving populations of wild horses anymore. We're, we don't, we're not going to keep them anymore. And so this is a huge, we need a judge to step in and take control of this. Right. And, it, and really, the reason they're doing it is, is for big business. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, um, frankly... If there were just a bunch of horses running around the landscape, I mean, they're not hurting anybody. And um, BLM doesn't control other populations of animals, but these animals directly compete with cattle who graze on the same land. And um, and the frank and the thing too is that horses, when they graze on the land, they don't graze it to to obliviation. I mean, they graze it down. In fact, some people say that they're help with fire suppression because they. They, they graze down the land, but they maintain enough grasses, so there's a lot of regeneration. While cattle, you know, th they'll just chew it all the way to the nub. I mean, you almost have to reseed it for it to come back in some cases. So, But we need, uh, our, we need our cheeseburgers, though, you know? Well, I guess so. Um, you know, that's what, what apparently is happening. But we all know, right, that – and we've talked about this before – We that the reality is Americans eat less and less meat in this country and that – in order to maintain the same profit margin, these companies are um, are now selling their their cows overseas, and you know this is part of the China co trade controversy, right? Yeah. You know, cows. Uh, you, uh, if you go back 10, 15 years ago, American beef wasn't exported; it was it was used here, but now it's exported broadly because 
no one here is buying it anymore in the same amount of numbers. So you're not even serving the American people, really. You're just serving the big businesses. And at the same time, you're going to um, excoriate a, a vital aspect of our natural environment and something that, again, sort of in a mythological way informs the national character in a way, you know, the wild horses. That doesn't seem healthy to me. And it's definitely not ethical. Uh, and I'm glad you're on the job, Michael Harris, attorney Michael Harris, director of the Wildlife Law Program for the organization Friends of Animals. And I'm proud to say a regular Troubadours and Rock on Tours contributor. He's great. And, you know, I look forward to talking with you again. Our time is just about up this go around. We'll talk again probably close to the end of summer. Uh, and between now and then, have a nice time and uh, good luck with all your work. Well, thank you, E.W. It was a pleasure. And uh, your show is fantastic. Again, I'm always super happy to be part of it. Oh, thank you. That means a lot, sir. Take care and good luck. Uh, hope to, to see you soon. One of these days we'll get together physically, perhaps, and drink a beer together. That would be fantastic. Take care now. Thanks. Bye-bye. You all know the doctor? Dr. John, Mac Rebenack. Come on, Mac. and thankfulness to the band and all the fellas. Two, three, four, one. Such a night. Such a night. Sweet confusion under the moonlight. Such a night. Such a night Got to steal away The time seem right Baby, your eyes met mine At a glance You let me know This was my chance Came here with my best friend Jim here I am just trying to steal you away from him Oh baby, if I don't do somebody else will If I don't do somebody else will If I don't do somebody else will If I don't do it, you know somebody else will Such a night Such a night Under the moonlight Such a night Such a night Got to steal away The time seemed right Baby, I couldn't believe my ears My heart just give a little beat Told me we could slip away down the dark end of the street. Baby, you came in with my best friend Jim. Here I am, just trying to steal you away from him, baby. You know.
Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground, Chapter 1. I am a sick man. I am a spiteful man. I am an unattractive man. I believe my liver is diseased. However, I know nothing at all about my disease and do not know for certain what ails me. I don't consult a doctor for it and never have, though I have a respect for medicine and doctors. Besides, I am extremely superstitious, sufficiently so to respect medicine anyway. I am well educated enough not to be superstitious, but I am superstitious. No, I refuse to consult a doctor from spite. That you probably will not understand. Well, I understand it, though. Of course, I can't explain who it is precisely that I am mortifying in this case by my spite. I am perfectly well aware that I cannot pay out the doctors by not consulting them. I know better than anyone that by all this I am only injuring myself and no one else. But still, if I don't consult a doctor, it is from spite. My liver is bad. Well, let it get worse. I have been going on like that for a long time, 20 years. Now I am 40. I used to be in the government service, but I am no longer. I was a spiteful official. I was rude and took pleasure in being so. I did not take bribes, you see. So I was bound to find a recompense in that, at least. A poor jest, but I will not scratch it out. I wrote it thinking it would sound very witty. But now that I have seen myself, that I only wanted to show off in a despicable way, I will not scratch it out on purpose. When petitioners used to come for information to the table at which I sat, I used to grind my teeth at them and felt intense enjoyment when I succeeded in making anybody unhappy. I almost did succeed. For the most part, they were all timid people, of course. They were petitioners. But of the uppish ones, there was one officer in particular I could not endure. He simply would not be humble and clanked his sword in a disgusting way. I carried on a feud with him for 18 months over that sword. At last, I got the better of him. He left off clanking it. That happened in my youth, though. But do you know, gentlemen, what was the chief point about my spite? Why, the whole point, the real sting of it lay in the fact that continually, even in the moment of the acutest spleen, I was inwardly conscious with shame that I was not only not a spiteful, but not even an embittered man, that I was simply scaring sparrows at random and amusing myself by it. I might foam at the mouth, but bring me a doll to play with. Give me a cup of tea with sugar in it, and maybe I should be appeased. I might even be genuinely touched, though probably I should grind my teeth at myself afterwards and lie awake at night with shame for months after. That was my way. I was lying when I said just now that I was a spiteful official. I was lying from spite. I was simply amusing myself with the petitioners and with the officer, and in reality, I never could become spiteful. I was conscious every moment in myself of many, very many elements absolutely opposite to that. I felt them positively swarming in me, these opposite elements. I knew that they had been swarming in me all 
of my life and craving some outlet from me. But I would not let them, would not let them, purposely would not let them come out. They tormented me till I was ashamed. They drove me to convulsions and sickened me. At last, how they sickened me. Now, are not you fancying, gentlemen, that I am expressing remorse for something now, that I am asking your forgiveness for something? I am sure you are fancying that. However, I assure you, I do not care if you are. It was not only that I could not become spiteful. I did not know how to become anything, neither spiteful nor kind, neither a rascal nor an honest man, neither a hero nor an insect. No, now I am living out my life in my corner, taunting myself with the spiteful and useless consolation that an intelligent man cannot become anything seriously, and it is only the fool who becomes anything. Yes, a man in the 19th century must and morally ought to be preeminently a characterless creature. A man of character, an active man, is preeminently a limited creature. That is my conviction of 40 years. I am 40 years old now, and you know 40 years is a whole lifetime. You know it is an extreme old age. To live longer than 40 years is bad manners, is vulgar, immoral. Who does live beyond 40? Answer that, sincerely and honestly, and I will tell you who do. Fools and worthless fellows, I tell all old men that to their face. All these venerable old men, all these silver-haired and reverend seniors, I tell the whole world that to its face. I have a right to say so, for I shall go on living to 60 myself, to 70, to 80. Stay. Let me take breath.
here's a kiss I hope that this brings lots of luck to you Makes no difference how I carry on Please don't talk about Wild Horses. A sea lion on the stairs of the mighty Columbia waits patiently for a meal of freshwater salmon and instead is blown away by a government employee sanctioned by me and you. And wild horses in Oregon run from them too as America slowly loses its soul. What is the goal? D-Ball! Everybody's talking, no one says a word Everybody's making love, no one really cares There's Nazis in the bathroom, just below the stairs Starting back in China So finish what you got Everybody's flying, I never touch the sky There's UFOs over New York, and I ain't 
And there you have it, episode 323 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our regular contributor, attorney Michael Harris. I also would like to thank Fyodor Dostoevsky, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Rodrigo E. Gabriela, The Beastie Boys, Dr. John, Leon Redbone, John Lennon, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard too. Until next week, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this one. Thanks so much for listening.